room to my father and cook dinner. <laughs> I've got a date tonight, Miss Crystal. Oh, you can break it. Come on. But I'm noted for the bad way I cook. If you throw a lamb chop to a hot oven, what's going to keep it from getting done? Hey, what have that hot date you had on for tonight, darling? It's hotter than ever, dear. I'm having him dine at my place. It's about time he found out I was a home girl. Home girl? <laughs> Get her. Why don't you borrow the quintuplets for the evening? Because I'm all the baby he wants, Pitt. How much would you pay me? Two bucks. Can't you make it three? I said two bucks. Oh, all right. I'm not buying anything in that ice box of yours. Yeah, cobwebs and a bottle of gin. Listening to episode 100 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. In 1939, Joan Crawford was at a personal and professional crossroad. In April that year, she was granted a divorce from her second husband, Francho Tone. Days later, she started a picture that was a big gamble. Joan had bet that a supporting role as a social climbing man trap would help her shed the label box office poison. 
When the picture turned out to be a big hit, it gave Joan the confidence to take more challenging roles. It was also the beginning of her break with Metro. Nationally, the race to find Scarlett O'Hara made the news for nearly two years in a publicity bonanza created by Russell Birdwell for David O. Selznick. But in Hollywood, among the stars, a bigger race was underfoot to land a role in the cast of The Women, the screen adaptation of Claire Booth Luce's Broadway hit from 1936. As the crown jewel capping off a decade's worth of woman's pictures, the picture boasted 135 roles for women and no men. Every star and wannabe in the film colony wanted to be cast in the women. Rosalind Russell noted, competition was fierce. Even the maids' roles were fought over. Roz had to fight for the part of Sylvia Fowler, and Joan Crawford had to fight to play Crystal Allen. At the end of the decade, Joan felt in the need for change, especially in playing those long-suffering, well-dressed heroines that left her feeling boxed in professionally. Joan's pictures did big business for Metro. She noted, there was a saying around MGM, Norma Shearer got the productions, Greta Garbo supplied the art, and Joan Crawford made the money to pay for both. She won a legion of fans and laurels like the one from Time magazine in 1937 when they called her queen of the pictures. But in the following year, in 1938, she was labeled box office poison by Harry Brandt, the head of the Independent Theater Owners of America. Brandt's list of stars who failed to sell tickets at the box office included Joan, Marlena Dietrich, Greta Garbo, Mae West, and Fred Astaire. Joan really had felt she had a kindred relationship with her fans, and she took this on board personally. Joan was gutted at the label, but she resolved to overcome it. More recently, in April 1939, she won the divorce against second husband Franco Tone, who had been physically and psychologically abusive. She watched as the columnist dissected her marriage and then submitted her life to the usual cycle of articles, such as Joan says she'll never marry again, followed by speculation over every escort's potential as husband number three. Instead of pay attention to this, Joan chose to focus on her career as a means to, to quiet the gossip hounds. Ever canny about hunting down a good script, Joan latched onto the women and felt the part of a brassy perfume salesgirl was ideal for breaking out of the close horse roles that she had in Mannequin, The Last of Mrs. Cheney, and The Shining Hour. Perhaps Joan had Grand Hotel in mind, that picture from 1932 where she had last distinguished herself in an ensemble picture featuring big stars like Garbo and the Barrymore Brothers. For many critics, Joan's little stenographer had walked off with the picture. Joan went directly to Mayer, that is Louis B. Mayer, head of the studio, and asked for the part of Crystal and the Women. Mayer was violently opposed to the idea of her playing an unsympathetic man trap. He attempted to talk her out of it. Mayer argued that Crystal was unlikable from start to finish without any redeeming qualities. Joan's fans would rebel. They would turn on her. Joan replied that she would play Wally Beery's grandmother if the script was good. 
It didn't matter if it was glamorous. She wanted the part. Louis B. Mayer styled himself as a patriarch of the most prestigious studio in Hollywood. He treated the women under contract like children in some sort of saccharine version of a family where he was the father. His favorite daughters knew their place and were obedient. Stars were typecast. When a type proved to be big box office, you didn't meddle with it unless the change conformed with Mayer's family values, such as when he meddled with Jean Harlow and tried to transform her from a platinum wisecracker into a demure brownette. Joan continued to lobby for the part despite Mayer's objections. The studio boss didn't forbid her from taking the part, but he didn't help her. She would have to persuade producer Hunt Stromberg and director George Cukor on her own. Stromberg didn't think the part was right for Joan. He attempted to dampen her enthusiasm by saying the part was too small for a star of her magnitude. Joan responded by saying that if she couldn't get a good picture on her own, she would sneak onto someone else's. The more she considered the homewrecker part, the more convinced she became she could stand out against all the other women in the cast who would play society dames. Joan argued for the part with both the producer and the director in one, but even after she was cast, Mayer scolded Joan. He was a perpetual doom merchant, like a raven on a branch, squawking about the damage the part would do to her career and her reputation as a leading style icon. Joan had never before challenged the authority in the front office, not even when she lost a part she really wanted, like when Mayer gave Reckless to Jean Harlow when it was originally supposed to be for Joan. At this turning point in her career, Joan was discontented with the way the studio was handling her stardom, and she wasn't going to be put off anymore by Mayer's patronizing bit about how he knew what was best. In The Women, Joan really comes into her own as an actor. She knew she should have roles that showcased her acting ability, and she knew that she was going to have to be wary against decisions from the front office and be prepared to fight them. The confidence she gained from fighting for the role of Crystal emboldened her to play Anna Holm, the scar-faced racketeer in a woman's face, another role that Mayer tried to prevent her from accepting. While Joan doesn't have much screen time in The Women, she makes the most of it with her lollipop eyes and most of all, her voice. Joan plays each scene with the voice of multiple characters. She switches a bespoke accent to fit each scene's context. To play a social climber like Crystal Allen, Joan proves it's not enough to look the part. You must sound it too. Joan's Crystal Allen shakes up a pack of society dames with her voice, which shows more range and ability than anyone else in the picture. The characters with a monostatic voice are the least interesting. Crawford's voice is her instrument. Joan performs at least four different accents. Crystal Allen's speech utterances reflect the New York streetscape. She can be 10th Avenue, Fifth Avenue, Broadway, or Park Avenue. During her first scene behind the perfume counter in Blacks, Joan uses three different accents. 
At first, she snaps at poor Butterfly McQueen, trying to bully her into cooking dinner, which Crystal will then pass off as her own culinary arts. In this scene, she is Hell's Kitchen. She's 10th Avenue. Joan bounces on her hip, her voice low yet buoyant, when she confides to fellow shop girl that it's time Stephen Haynes learned that she was a home girl. The way Joan draws out the pronunciation of home girl exaggerates how far removed it is from reality. Joan tells the audience that the part requires a performance to come across. Shop girl Pat, played by Virginia Gray, makes a wisecrack about crystal barring quintuplets for the evening's ruse. Joan nixes that. She's all the baby he wants. Butterfly McQueen wants no part of being a secret chef. Joan's voice becomes tough when she convinces Butterfly, very 10th Avenue, or as the local residents of Hell's Kitchen like to call it affectionately, double 5th Avenue. Joan's voice is abrasive when she arranges the dinner. She punches out her consonants like a prize fighter. Joan gathers up perfume orders while she minimizes the task at hand for Butterfly. If you throw a lamb chop in a hot oven, what's going to keep it from getting done? Joan makes her voice lower by taking a drag on a cigarette, then talking as she exhales the smoke. It sounds close to a growl. As Pat had noted, the only thing Crystal keeps in the fridge is cobwebs and a bottle of gin. Crystal is a home wrecker, not a homemaker. Stephen rings the shop to cancel their plans for the evening. Crystal answers the phone and improvises with a stage accent that is pure Broadway melodrama. Joan's voice flutters up several octaves. The salty word choices born of the asphalt street disappear. Suddenly, Joan sounds like a delicate woman clutching pearls on a fainting couch. Her voice falters with a tremulous note when she explains that it's her birthday. Then her voice trembles even more when she tells Stephen about her neuralgia acting up. And she's had a letter from home about her sister. She lays on the melodrama good and thick, plus some of that lovey-dovey cooing when she says his name soft and low. The scene sets up a contrast between Crystal's pantomime female sob story, torn from an old Clyde Fitch production, and Pat's throwaway zingers from the one about Crystal's unwell sister, what's the matter she got a hangover, to the real date of Crystal's birthday. Crystal's voice on the phone with Stephen doesn't match her personality, as we've seen. She code switches back and forth between delicate romantic femininity and that Hell's Kitchen stoop language, like when she threatens to slug Pat. Quicker than a spritz from an atomizer of summer rain, her voice turns back to hard-boiled, asking the other women if they can believe that he almost stood her up for his wife the absolute gall. In the back room, Crystal retells those old chestnuts that men buy. In fact, the picture is a behind-the-scenes look at the scenes of performative femininity that women create while they juggle men with an address on Wall Street. Joan's voice slides up and down the register, smooth and vital. 
she speaks in a tongue laden with honey or nettles, depending on the audience. Another sales clerk alerts Crystal to customers who have requested her at the counter. It's just before closing time, and little Crystal wants to fly to her pigeon. But she has to hide her annoyance and assume the position behind the counter and put on her best Fifth Avenue diction. Crystal stands behind crystal bottles filled with seductive potions as she offers to help the ladies. The society dames are salivating to get a good look at the love thief. Sylvia, played by Rosalind Russell, and Edith, played by Phyllis Pova, gawp, getting an eyeful of the man trap who broke up Mary's fool's paradise. You can see their agenda from a mile away. They peer in Crystal's face like it was feeding time in the zoo. When Sylvia makes a throwaway comment about her dear friend, Mary Haynes. Here, Joan Crawford's voice floats above the society dames looking for blood. She uses her Fifth Avenue accent when asked if she perhaps sold a bottle of summer rain to Mr. Stephen Haynes. Joan's voice becomes soft, aloof, and strictly enunciated. She replies that men have other women on their minds when they come to the perfume counter. With her very polite voice, she makes a polite jab about having one's mind on one's own business. Joan is a masterclass grinfecker behind the counter. With a honey-sweet voice, she can insult Sylvia's personality, call her cheap, and make a crack about her being predatory by calling her Mrs. Prowler, by mistake, of course. You can get away with the most scathing insults if you wear a sweet smile on your face, especially when you're a woman. Crystal Allen switches vocalizations with an ease like she's shrugging off a sable coat in the fitting room. As Crystal, Joan's voice is the ultimate accessory. It's her passport. It opens doors. Her voice is ultimately what opens up a line of credit for her new wardrobe and gets her the walk down the aisle. Crystal's facility with matching accents to an occasion is nimble enough to launch her from the perfume counter to a penthouse. In another scene in the fitting rooms, after the fashion show, Crystal utters the plummy Park Avenue vowels that embellish an order for negligees that cost $225 each. The imports with hand embroidery Excuse me for mangling it. My voice is not as good as Joan's. Joan's pronunciation of hand embroidery is as posh as the price tag. Each vowel is massaged for maximum impact. Ask and ye shall receive is what enterprising dames like Crystal figured out a long time ago. In her changing room, Joan's state of undress matches her accent versatility. When the shop matron enters, Joan's speech becomes pure Park Avenue again after having ordered the hand embroidery. She wants to have her bills sent to Mr. Stephen Haynes' 20 wall. Then Joan quickly changes into her stage melodrama voice, her Broadway tongue, where she explains in a plaintive tone that she hasn't yet met Mrs. St. Haynes socially and how awful it is to be a girl on her own in the city and not wishing to do the wrong thing. 
Crystal wants a wardrobe that matches her accent and dons a gold turban and dressing gown with matching hot pants. She stands before a three-way mirror flashing her legs by pulling back the sides of the dressing gown when she's interrupted by a visitor. Mary Haynes from the dressing room across the hall, played by Norma Shearer, of course, has staged a confrontation from one of those Broadway melodramas. But in this scene, Crystal doesn't have to act. She doesn't have to use one of her put-on voices. She's her own dear hard-boiled self. Don't force any issues unless you want plenty of trouble, Crystal advises. Joan's voice clangs like a charm bracelet you can hear on a dame before she enters the room. She comes across loud and clear. Her tone is deep and mocking. She can be soft on the right occasion. You noble wives and mothers bore the brains out of me. I bet you bore your husbands too. Joan takes obvious delight in this moment. She relishes it. Crystal pauses and smiles. She takes a break from what she was doing and almost lights a cigarette. She's not put out or worried for a minute about her lover's wife standing there with steam coming out of her ears. Crystal is secure about her allure and her hold on Stephen. Crystal is on the level with Mary. What has she got to kick about? She is the name and the money, so why stir things up? Norma Shearer's attempt to play at high hat doesn't quite come off. Joan stands there oozing sex and glamour. Norma makes a crack, a crack about how Stephen doesn't like such obvious effects, referring to the gold ensemble. Joan moves forward and blocks Norma paths at this point and says, thanks for the tip, but when anything I wear doesn't please Stephen, I take it off. In her next scene, after she's the new Mrs. Haynes, Crystal is naked soaking in a tub. She picks up a bonbon, holds it aloft, and rolls her big, beautiful eyes. She's petulant, sullen, bored. The worst thing Crystal does in this picture is throw a sponge at the French maid hovering around the private bath, trying to get Madame out. For this scene, Joan mostly uses her 10th Avenue voice. She's hard-boiled and discontent married to a Wall Street bore. When her lover rings, Buck Winston, the chambermaid's delight, Joan still sounds like a tough dame, telling him she's not going to throw away her meal ticket by taking any risks. She'll do the calling. He better stop dialing her number. Little Mary interrupts and is a miniature of her mother. She's a scold who corrects Crystal's manners and tells her she's something awful. This is the child who calls Crystal a silly thing for simply listening to the radio and playing solitaire at night. I shudder each time I watch at that line. What is Crystal supposed to do? Darn his socks and iron his boxers and lick his feet? It's insane. Once the brat leaves, Crystal has Sylvia on her hands. While Sylvia prattles on about armchair psychology she learned from her therapist about Stephen's guilt complex, Joan keeps her 10th Avenue voice. Sylvia claims her, that her friendship gave Crystal entry into the best homes. For their best insults, Crystal snaps. For the final scene, Joan brings out all the stops for the finale. 
She's Park Avenue when she talks over loud to brag about Stephen's presence. She's Broadway when she confronts Sylvia for gossiping about Buck Winston. She uses her Beth 10th Avenue when she accuses Mary of trying to break up her marriage. And for her parting shot, Crystal Allen is once again Fifth Avenue as she announces her return to the perfume counter. There's a name for ladies, for you ladies, but it isn't used in high society outside of a kennel. Crystal returns to thinly veiled insults rather than just call them a pack of bitches. It's also interesting to note the impact that Crystal has on the other characters in the film, especially on Mary Haynes. Mary recognizes how useful it can be to have multiple accents and how sounding tough can be a big help for a woman. At one point, tearful, she tells Paulette Goddard's Miriam Ahrens, what have I got to kick about, which is borrowed directly from her encounter with Crystal in the dressing room. And Mary uses sister back at Paulette trying to sound like another tough dame. Mary has absorbed the fact that language is much more complex than just being proper. 10th Avenue speech might just be more correct to suit the context of the messy business of being a woman. When film critics discuss the adaptation of Clara Luce Booth's stage hit, they often focus on the rivalries between the women on set. Columnists at the time highlighted backstage dramatics, particularly among the top build Norma Shearer and Joan Crawford, and they still talk about it today in the politics of stardom. In the past, I have also indulged in this kind of talk in the juicy details of the feud between Norma and Joan. But at this stage, I'm wondering, doesn't it seem a little tired to keep rehashing these details? Hasn't the catfight angle been done to death? The more you peel back the layers of power during the studio system and look at how things worked, it's so clear that the system was designed to pit women against each other. It's also worth noting that the conflicts were exaggerated. George Cukor went on record with a hot take about having been a lion tamer on set, but he also dismissed the overblown gossip about catfights on the set. Like many important figures from the golden age of Hollywood, Cukor's views were subject to change and were often influenced by the audience or interviewer. He's rather harsh about his comments with the women when he's talking to Gavin Lambert. He makes disparaging comments about Adrian's designs and the Technicolor fashion scene. But in another interview he gave, it disrupts this legend about the primacy of backstage feuds. In an interview from 1969, Cukor states that he had just recently seen the women for the first time since it was released, and he speaks of it in really glowing terms. Cukor notes in the Higgum and Greenberg interview, Often, when you work for a number of consecutive days among the same group of people, especially in this business, some are bound to be a little testy or cranky, but on the women, they were all rather a jolly bunch. There was a little bit of incidental rivalry among them because each had her clothes fitted separately and they'd see each other for the first time on set. Then they give each other quick little appraising glances as if to say, how does she look? But there really wasn't much of that. 
In this version, Q-Core limits the rivalry to fashion. Chances are you already know the story about the feuds on set, chapter and verse. Instead of telling you about how Joan rudely clacked her knitting needles during Norma's close-ups, or how Norma used her position as stockholder in the studio to make decisions, let me tell you about another backstage power struggle. The real drama on the set occurred between men. Since it was between men, it didn't appear in any columns and it receives less attention. The feud I'm referring to could have had long-standing consequences for Metro, unlike the press reports about squabbling over billing. During production, there was a conflict between studio head Louis B. Mayer and Gilbert Adrian, the top designer in MGM's costume department since 1928. Adrian, as he was known in his screen credits, had streamlined wardrobe production in a production facility that was without equal in the studio system. For more than a decade, Adrian headed a department staffed with exceptional artisans who could make anything at a moment's notice. Adrian sketched 50 to 75 original designs each day in the studio. He oversaw every stage of costume production, from the drawing board and workshop to the fitting room and sound stage. Production head Irving Thalberg had served as a buffer between Adrian's creative output and the front office bean counters. Adrian had the best of everything in terms of material and staff, and no one in the studio ever questioned his design choices or the cost. A Fortune magazine profile in 1932 on the boy genius producer Irving Thalberg praised him for keeping the studio in the black and profitable when so many other film studios were in the red and on the brink of bankruptcy. Thalberg had refused to take credit for the studio's success. Instead, he gave box office credit to two men, Cedric Gibbons, head of art department, and Gilbert Adrian, head of costume department. Irving stated that Gibbons and Adrian were responsible for the glossy look of MGM Productions. Even if the plot or the acting was somewhat lacking in a picture, audiences still bought a ticket to watch glamorous sets and costumes. During a bleak economic time, the style of an MGM picture was a shot in the arm. But Irving had died in 1936, tragically young, from a heart condition and pneumonia, but also from the demands of studio production. Soon after, beginning in 1937, Mayer encroached on Adrian's domain in the costume department. Mayer believed his own authority extended to every branch of the studio. He attempted to interfere with design and the budget. Adrian rankled under Mayer's interference. Once his protector was gone, Adrian had to deal with Mayer's complaints about the expense or his own aesthetic values. For the women, Adrian created 237 gowns, all of which combine an inspired match between character and story. Many film scholars have noted that in a George Cukor picture, the action on screen moves from the actors, not the camera. I would add that in the women, the action also derives from the costumes by Adrian. Who else could put a woman in a bustle in 1939 and make it gel with the plot and setting? 
Adrian had been dressing Joan Crawford since Our Modern Maidens in 1929. They had built trust and rapport. Adrian knew that Joan wanted clothes that she could move in. She never stopped moving during a fitting. For most of the 1930s, while stars like Garbo and Norma were cooling their heels in hoop skirts and sausage curls, Adrian's cutting-edge modern designs helped establish Joan's stardom and her role as a global style icon. As Crystal Allen, Joan had only four costume changes, a radical departure from the usual elaborate wardrobe she enjoyed throughout her contract with Metro. Joan appeared in a simple black frock behind the perfume counter in blacks, adorned with faux pearl accessories. She wears a black blouse and skirt with a black satin coat and feathered hat in the dressing room scene, then changes into the gold turban lounging outfit for when Norma barges in. She wears only suds in the bathroom scene. And then for the finale in the casino roof powder room, Joan wears a gold sequin number with a bare midriff, jeweled belt, full skirt, topped with a fur coat that drags on the floor. One day, Mayer saw Joan in her gold sequin costume in the rushes and lost his temper. Mayer considered the outfit cheap and tasteless. He objected to one of his biggest stars having bits of her torso on display, dressed up like a common tart. It was undignified, according to the studio boss. Mayer confronted Adrian and told him to ditch the gown. He wanted it replaced with something tasteful. Fed up with the boss, Adrian was prepared to hand in his resignation and walk off the lot for good. Without Thalberg to keep Mayer off his back, Adrian turned to the producer, Hunt Stromberg. Stromberg cautioned Adrian against quitting. He reminded Adrian that Mayer's reach extended to every studio in the film colony. One word from Mayer was all it took, and Adrian would never work again. He needed to be smart about it. A meeting was set for Mayer's big office with a white carpeting and white lacquer desk. Adrian was prepared. He had selected an alternate gown to show the boss. It was done in plain white crepe with a jewel-encrusted belt, high neckline, and bell sleeves. It was demure and ladylike and would appease the studio head. The gown had been created for the Technicolor fashion sequence and then was discarded at the last minute. On the surface, it looked like Adrian complied with Mayer's orders, but in reality, Adrian showed Mayer the gown because he knew that Joan Crawford and Norma Shearer would never allow it in the final scene, and neither would Adrian. Joan understood the aesthetic logic behind the gold sequent gown. It marks her break with society. In a room full of dames in evening gowns, Joan was sure to stand out in gold sequins and the peekaboo midriff. Adrian had tried to explain how the dress fit the scene to Mayer, but the studio boss had refused to listen. Joan was a good sport about the white crepe gown that Adrian wanted to use in the meeting to pacify Mayer. She even posed for publicity photos wearing the gown, like the picture that I've used for this podcast episode, but she had no intention of wearing it in the finale. The gown was too similar to the white gown that Mary Haynes would wear for the powder room showdown. Norma's modest white gown had a modest jeweled belt. Norma would also reject Joan's new gown as unsuitable. 
At the appointed hour for the meeting, Adrian went to Mayer's office flanked by Joan, Stromberg, and QCOR. The decor gown was presented and then argued against. It took four people to convince Mayer that the white crepe number made no sense. Joan had to wear the gold sequin peekaboo number. Together, they figured out a way to avoid a war over a dress. They outsmarted Mayer, and Adrian stayed in MGM to design another day. George Cukor was in the middle of recovering from his own setbacks after he had been unceremoniously removed from Gone with the Wind, a picture he had been working on in pre-production for more than a year. To be publicly sacked from the most publicized film of the decade was a huge blow, personally and professionally. Cukor's boundless energy was now redirected to the women, which had been flailing under a series of rewrites from more than a dozen screenwriters. Cukor brought Anita Luce and Jane Murph into the set to improvise jokes for those that the production code administration had blue penciled out. Although Cukor was brought in to save the production, it didn't stop the front office from interfering with his production. Hunt Stromberg and Mayer were both concerned that Cukor had to temper the satire with a respect for the institution of marriage that they wanted to see in the conventional ending. The way Cukor put it, MGM felt women in the audience should be reassured that a dull wife could keep her husband. Even with the executive-level nosy Parkers meddling with the script, the jokes from Luce and Murfin are often funnier than the original. And Cukor's version contains a subversive core, which suggests that proper femininity is something that only exists when it's performed for the benefit of men. Absent a man in a picture, the women are real. They're self-obsessed. They look to maximize relationships for their own advantage, something that men have done for ages. The women is satire of the highest order, right up there with Jonathan Swift, It's no tragedy when Crystal goes back to the perfume counter. She'll catch another rich husband before long. Shortly after the success of the women, Joan's main competition, Norma and Garbo, both retired from pictures in 1941. Joan should have had first pick of the best scripts, but it didn't work out that way. Perhaps Mayer resented her ambition to prove her talent, as she had intended when she chose the studio's remake of Ingrid Bergman's picture, A Woman's Face. Once again, Mayer tried to steer her away from playing a nasty character who was also disfigured in his understanding. In Mayer's cinematic economy, beautiful women should never be anything less than glamorous on screen. You could be dying of consumption or cholera, like Garbo or Myrna Loy, but you still look like a beautiful star. The fact that Joan wanted to play Anna Holm, a blackmailer and a scar-faced racketeer, offended him to the core. Instead of lining up the prestige pictures for Joan, he favored Greer Garson with the plum assignments. If you cross Mayer, he remembered. Joan packed it in and left Metro in 1943 and never looked back. She was on the cusp of 40 in a business that was fueled by fresh young faces. She had the willpower to resist panic and held out for nearly two years waiting for the right vehicle. She found it in an unlikely place, Warner Brothers. 
she pulled out all the stops for Mildred Pierce, and it paid off with an Oscar. But for my money, Crawford should have won for playing a dame with four different New York accents. She can hammer out the tough patter of 10th Avenue, grin feck lazy housewives behind a counter on 5th Avenue, play a damsel with a quivering voice like a stage hit on Broadway, and order the best lingerie like a Park Avenue matron. The following books helped me to write the episode. A Portrait of Joan, an autobiography of Joan Crawford by Joan Crawford with Jane Kesner Ardmore, published in 1962. Joan Crawford, a biography by Bob Thomas, published in 1978. Gowns by Adrian, The MGM Years, 1928-1941, to by Howard Guttner, published in 2001. On Cucor, by Gavin Lambert, published in 2000. The Celluloid Muse, Hollywood Directors Speak Out, edited by Charles Higgum and Joel Greenberg, published in 1969. You can support the podcast by becoming a subscriber on Patreon, or you can write a nice review on iTunes or social media. I'm taking a break from the regular series right now after my 100th episode to write and direct the podcast serial that I've told you about, Salon Divine. Look for the first episode of a five-part original story in October. I shall return to the regular podcast with an episode on Judy Holiday sometime in November. Thanks so much for listening.